This is Speaking of Anthropology. My name's Kevin. My name's Dylan. And, uh, you know, we have a back-to-back show today, but also a wonderful show um, to talk about uh, the history, the, the, the past, the present, and the future all tied up into one. Um, we have Leslie uh, McCartney uh, from the UAF Library um, of the Archives. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Dylan and Kevin, for having me on today. This is really fun. Um, Yes, I'm the curator of the Oral History Collection at UAF, which is located down on, um, well, it's located in the Rasmussen Library. There's paper archives, film archives, and the Oral History Archive, as well as the Alaska Native Language Archive. So we're all sort of the same family. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, we we appreciate you for coming in today. Um, And we, we do have to start out, I mean, today's weather's much better. (laughs) <laughs> comparatively to, to yesterday. Oh, man. that that. So how was getting into the station here today? Not, not too bad. Not too bad. Blue is snow, but I'm from Ontario. Pretty pretty normal weather for me. Right. There you go. Well, to everyone out there, and uh, as Leslie said, just come on out. Come, get out, get around campus. Get around Fairbanks. You got this. No worries, uh, right? It'll be, it'll be, it should be no problem at all. So uh, just sort of to start out with... Um, We'll, we'll do a little bit on your background, if that's all right, before diving into the archives. Sure. So um, just as our general question for a lot of folks, what made you interested in, in doing what you do in anthropology in the first place? So I have um, a very varied background career. I first started out working um, in law offices in Ontario, Canada, and owned a small farm with my then husband. And when our third child was born in less than four years, I decided that when the kids were a little bit older, I was going to go to law school. So I started to take some university courses in the evening because I'd never been to university. And first one I took was psychology. And the second one that I took was anthropology. And I guess I have always loved anthropology, but just didn't realize that I loved anthropology. I've always had a fascination with other places, other cultures, other languages, other beliefs. Um, I've I loved archaeology, so I decided that um, I would stick with the anthro-psych degree and um, eventually graduate and not go to law school. And as it turned out, when I started doing my master's degree um, several years later, I had been doing archaeology, and I decided, uh, I was asked actually by the Gwich'in Social and Cultural Institute in the Northwest Territories if I would come up to the communities of Sigechik, Inuvik, Fort McPherson, and Aklavik and interview elders for their life stories. And so that was very much like a cultural anthropology, oral history type of project. And so my first trip up there was in 1998. Um, really started interviewing in 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, I later became the executive director of the institute, uh, which was really on a really neat time because digital audio was just beginning. And so one of my first projects was to digitize a lot of the oral history that had already been collected um, from the 60s, 70s, whatever. So that sort of brought me into this technology world that I had absolutely no idea about anything. So it was a huge learning curve, but an exciting learning curve. And so I did interview um, at least 23 elders the book is right now, if you can believe it, 21 years later, hopefully going to be published in the spring by the University of Alberta Press. It's over 600 pages long. Um, so be careful when you take on a master's project, just <laughs> what you actually do. <laughs> so that, that was my first, that's my foray into working with oral history and cultural anthropology. And I've I've done that in um, various projects. I worked in London, England on a very large oral history project for over four years. I've worked in Ireland um, dealing with audio recording, and now I'm here in Alaska working with audio recordings and oral history. Yeah, and I, wow, sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, hey, yeah, I think that's a good note for everyone out there and, and um, budding anthropologists and young academics. Your master's will take some time, but it will get there and um, you know, you know, work hard at it, um, and, and so on and so forth. I actually changed my master's thesis topic so I could actually get it done in 10 years as opposed to waiting for 21. <laughs> so, <laughs> did have this question for you, um, mm-hmm. Leslie. Um, you know, and I know, you know, so for all our listeners, um, 
you know, you're listening to anthropology and you're listening to our discussion on radio, but oral history, that's something different, right? And is, is there a definition that you can provide um, for us? Yes, it's, it's a recording, so it has to be recorded, of a person's memories of their experiences, their own personal memories and experiences. Sure. So you and I and Dylan could witness an event and we would all have a slightly different story about it based on our perception, where we're standing, our past, our biases, our views. And so when you're using oral history, and it is a qualitative methodology, um, and it can be used in many, many fields, not just in anthropology, it's qualitative interviewing. So it's not like journalism where you ask a question and get a quick answer back. It's more like, can you tell me about what happened? Tell me what you felt. What did this mean to you? It's a lot about the meaning um, of what things mean to people. Um, So it's, it's recorded. Interviews can be very, very long. They can take multiple days, weeks, years um, to try and get at subjects. Um, And if you have a theme involved, you don't just talk to one person. You want to talk to a a whole spectrum of people about that subject to get many, many different points of view. So uh, that's what makes oral history um, unique. All righty. That is, is, yeah, it's it's a very interesting um, thing. I I like how you mentioned that you can apply it to other fields too because I think you mentioned um, psychology right and I would imagine that especially with something like psychology where you're you said you were for the um, for these kind of interviews you're asking what things mean right and so of course that is conveys so much information to anthropologists right about cultural meanings and and values and stuff but I would also imagine that they overlap with a field like psychology right where what does it mean to you that can be both you know, how are you interpreting it, right, through the lens of culture, but also your your own internal psychological aspects that are, however clearly you can try and separate some of those processes, right, as right. embedded as they are. But. And that's one thing you do have to be cautious of when you're doing oral history is that you are not a therapist. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot about learning to listen and giving people a space and time and pauses to collect their thoughts and and recall what it is that they're remembering and trying to 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 tell you and it's very much situated within a cultural context so um, you have to know the cultural context behind things in order to understand or at least try to understand what makes sense Um, and so that's a very large learning curve for people who are doing oral history got to do your research first you know you have to don't need to know your subjects inside out upside down because that's why you're interviewing somebody they're educating you but you also have to understand the other issues that were probably happening at the time or what the events were and sometimes you know um, factual things are people's memories you know error Um, you know people may get a date wrong or something like that that's easy to check that that's you know memory is not perfect but it's it I go back again it's that sense of meaning that is the most important in someone's personal perspective yeah there's there's so many things um, and you know I think on our very first episode zero (laughs) <laughs> we talked, uh, we played a little bit of uh, Marshall Solon's uh, anthropologist uh, lecture. It's, it's fa- famous on YouTube. You can search it. Um, and he, we quoted him and we, we played his clip and he talked about the lived experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of our humanistic values being that, yes, we live these things, but then we need to share it in some way, right? And so, you know, the ways in which we share it, I think through psychology, right? So emotions and gestures and, um, you know, uh, the linguistic tones that we we provide. But I, you know, it it makes me consider uh, storytelling to be so important. And, uh, you know, we all have our histories, our backgrounds. Um, Both Dylan and I are budding or infant uh, cultural anthropologists, until we reach, uh, you know, uh, receive our bachelor's degree, I guess, uh, you know, we may not be a full anthropologist, but we are working towards it, right? And uh, uh, to, you know, we all have our stories of where we're from, you know, uh, and uh, the, the experiences that we've had. And I think that, you know, and we appreciate the work that you do um, in, in uh, you know, in providing these options and availability for us uh, to study. So, yes. yeah. 
Yeah, we have a wonderful archive that's just waiting there for people to use it. Um, yeah, and, and Tom King was a Indigenous scholar in Canada, and I love his one line. It's, um, the truth about stories is that's all we are. Right. <laughs> and I, I really, yeah. that harkens back to me a lot because we are a bundle of stories. Yeah. Stories to be told at some point, right? Yes. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the questions um, that I, I w- wanted to, to follow up with um, is, so, you know, I know within the field of anthropology and uh, as anthropologists, we, we rely a great deal on ethnography and sources, um, you know, whether that be research, uh, whether that be giving a presentation for outreach to the community, uh, or, or even um, if we're doing, you know, uh, a past, present, future source study, uh, we rely on these archival pieces. Um, so, you know, where can we go? Can we go to you, Leslie? <laughs> can we go to the library or, you know, just give yep. us a... Quick, um, yeah. So we have in our collection just under 13,000 different recordings on an array of media. Um, we are digitizing. I would say about 57, 58 of our percent of our collection is actually digitized. Some of that in various ways is online, which I can tell you about. Um, other times it's not online, but if you come to us, we chir- we search for the legal requirements that we need to have, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, I can put it on a thumb drive for you, and off you go. Um, you can use this. Uh, you have to remember that oral sources, if you have a cassette or a reel-to-reel or even a digital recording, it's not like a book. You can't flip through it and tell what you know what's said. Is this going to be valid or not? Um, in a perfect world, you would have full transcripts to go with everything, which does not replace the original source. The original source is always the audio, but it's a great like a listing aid, like an index to tell you whether or not this is going to be of use for you because sitting and listening to an hour recording to find out that hmm, that really wasn't what I needed is a lot of time. Uh, we do have transcripts, on not on all recordings by any means, or summaries, or the old fashion keywords. So sometimes we can help people who are, you know, wanting to look for a certain subject a certain way or a person or a topic. We can we can help people find things that way. So um, part of our our recordings are a listing of them, I should say, can be found through the library catalog and you just filter under oral history and any recordings related to a person or that a name will come up. Some of them you can click right there and l- actually listen to them, and a couple of the clips that I brought today is an example of that. Other times it'll say you need to contact our office because maybe there's some legal restrictions that we we, we um, have to look at first. Um, that's the main way. We also have a project called Project Jukebox, um, which what we do is we take recordings that are in our archive based on a subject or theme. We go out and do more interviews, then we build what's called a jukebox online. All the interviews are online with historical photographs, film, other contextual information so that it makes the stories that are being told in that particular project more holistic. You have more of a whole story because you're using all these different archival sources to tell a story. The library catalog is good to listen to a particular recording, but you're not getting a a big context around it. So that's kind of the purpose of Jukebox. Um, And then there's a new um, digital repository portal that the archives have, and we're actually putting on their historical audio. I'm not putting on interviews, but we have a lot of like KUAC programs in our collection. And right now we're loading up about 133 different radio programs that we're aired KUAC in the 1980s. So that's another source for historical audio, not just oral history. So I don't know if you want to put the websites up on your website later. Um, is that helpful? Definitely. Yeah, we okay. love to share it. And, I, you know, thank you for just giving us that rundown. I mean, to any listeners out there, um, you had a research project coming up. I mean, it's November 15th right now. Finals are coming up. You got questions. You got archives that you need go get them, right? The sources are right there waiting for you and um, so available, so accessible, I mean, in this day and age. um, And I I think it's fantastic that we have it. Yeah, at one time you would, you know, when things were still on cassettes and reels, you would literally have to find the library, then find the archives in the library, then make sure someone was there, actually play it back on old playback equipment. But now with digital, it's totally revolutionized the way that we can access oral sources. Absolutely. And 
I think too it is uh, it it is something that we should keep repeating to students that these these are so available right that you do you, that, you know you're writing a paper it's one in the morning you don't have to go into the library and hope mm-hmm. you know because then you know librarians are, are people and they have their hours and libraries have their hours but like with the with the way everything's available now it's so useful and even if you don't have a project right even if you're just curious you know because we live in a state with such a rich mm-hmm history and with such rich oral histories you know if you have time you know folks who are listening to this right clearly clearly y'all enjoy listening to something while you're doing whatever else you're doing whether you're driving or you're at work or something so you know maybe just check out the oral archive see if there's a stories that interest you you know because there's so much there that I think you know even if you even if you're not gonna write about it or you know not gonna do something academic with it today, it can still be just a tremendously valuable experience to just hear those those lived experiences. Definitely. And if you do find something in the archive that has not yet been digitized, we can usually turn that around in 24 hours. So it, we're pretty quick um, to be able to get you material if there's something you need. And we have researchers from all over the world contacting us for various sources. I forget I forget now, there was a student um, in one of the universities on the East Coast, about six months, contacted us looking for the original audio of a speech that someone had made. And it had been written about very many times in a book, but no one had bothered to actually go back and listen to the actual audio. And she found striking differences. So this, you know, this text had been sort of been misled for many, many years until she actually went back and listened to the original audio. So uh, that was pretty exciting when that happened. Definitely. Yeah. This is Speaking of Anthropology here at KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. Uh, We have uh, Leslie from the uh, UAF Library Curator, uh, the director, uh, here with us on our show, and we thank you for coming today. Um, You earlier mentioned Project Jukebox, um, and... uh, you know, the, the, the vast uh, array of stories on there. Um, and yet you brought a clip today, I believe, right? Yes, yes. yes. Um, the clip is with Lena Charlie, uh, an interview we did with her mm, a couple of years ago now. And the reason I chose uh, Lena was because I couldn't bring with you clips of the elders that I had interviewed in the Northwest Territories because they belong to another organization. But Lena's interview is very much a classic Athabascan-type story about growing up a traditional subsistence lifestyle for her and Chichina, and just the way she talks about it just warms my heart. So I'm not playing music on your program today. I'm actually playing audio clips. <laughs> I think it's absolutely appropriate given our uh, topic today. So thank you. This is a little excerpt from a interview with Lena Charlie on uh, Project Jukebox, available through UAF. Yeah. What did your mom and dad do? Did they live a subsistence lifestyle? Uh, what? Did your mom and dad live a subsistence lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. We're here, but up there by the river. Mm-hmm. Back there over fish camp, we had they had house there. But last year ago, I went over there and looked for the house. I didn't see them. That was over a long mm-hmm. time ago. They fish them and hunt and stuff. That's the only way we used to live. Did you did you grow up in Chistachina? No. We're around a little bit and mostly we spend the time in Chinita. Mm-hmm. They got creek right there and fish come up. So we had to stay there for fish all the time. And then move back way up they call them Bensonita Lake, now Tanara Lake. Tanara Lake? Yeah. Because yeah. fish go up in that lake too. Mm-hmm. Then uh, when I grew up, I must be about six years old, I lose the daddy. And all that time my mom just ra- raised us up. My brother is old enough, my sister. And Ruby, she's the oldest one too. And just me and Laura, little small. Laura's uh, four years old, younger than me. So 
He's a baby yet when I was about six. <clears throat> then we go up way back in the Besner Road where we call it Two Lake there, Twin Lake we call it. And we fish them there too for grilling. We stay there for fish too all the time. And more we go, go up in the Besner. And then I never came back till I grew up. Right, yeah, it's just a china. And then I moved back when my I had my first baby, and Evelyn. That's when we started stay down here. Long time. We were talking to Wilson. And he said that you had um, worked for some of hunting guides. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's that? You you talk you worked for helping yeah, take care I of the horses for the hunting guides, yeah. and you guided. Okay. Could you talk some about that? Yeah, and when Lee Hancock come up up this country, and he's a guide. Mm -hmm. So when I in my Tony. He hired me for a uh, horse wrangle, just uh, take care of horse mm -hmm. and stuff. So in the winter time, I took care of them way up in the Basin country. I had to go up with a uh, sled, got about three, four dog, took care of them horse. Then we came back next summer, because I've been hunting all the time for mm -hmm. ourselves and sheep moves and so he hired me for the guiding well, I went out doing pretty good after that only they have to show me how to cave it and cave out the moose and stuff mm -hmm. and I do I learned pretty fast so I started a guide for him and then I worked another place D Hart I worked for him too mm -hmm. up uh, Copper. Up by Slana? Yeah. Well, this is Speaking of Anthropology. My name's Kevin. My name's Dylan. Um, uh, you just listened to a um, Project Jukebox uh, recording, um, and uh, we have uh, Leslie McCartney here with us in the studio um, talking, and, you know, and in, in, uh, was in, in, in the interview. <laughs> uh, you heard Leslie uh, speak uh about uh, an interview with uh, Bar Barbara Barbara Solaris, yes. yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, maybe uh, you know uh, a little bit? Of, give us a little context about this recording. Okay, yeah. so this recording, um, Barbara and I visited with Lena back in April 2015 in in her home. And a lot of oral history interviews are done in people's homes, where it's nice and comfortable. Um, and it was part of the Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve Project Jukebox. And funding for the jukeboxes has to come from external forces, uh, sources. And so the National Park Service had actually funded this. And they, they, it was a multi-year project and multi-funded. So they wanted to talk to people who lived in and around the park about their experiences of, of living there, perhaps growing up there, like as, as you could hear with um, Lena's little a clip there and you know the impact of them becoming a park on their lives and so Lena was was um, also a guide at one time as she mentioned and had an absolutely fascinating life and so that was one of the interviews that we did as part of part of that project that's a very large project actually the Wrangell St. Elias project jukebox so it features people from a lot of communities in and around the park um, so very fascinating, and as I said, it was made over several different implemented implemented funding over several several different years, as as many oral history projects are. And you mentioned that this was a very large project. Could you uh, maybe sort of describe how you're evaluating the size? Is it based on how many folks were interviewed then, and if so, how many are we talking? I don't remember on that one how many people were interviewed, but I think if you just scroll down the page, you'll you'll see that it was a number of people. Um, so don't forget, you know, some of the interviews would have come perhaps already from the archive. Um, I this project had a, had already been had a couple of iterations before I came along, um, and then you go out and you so you look at what you've got in your archive, you look at what 
the funding agreement is about what the work is that you said you were going to do, and then you go and you try and find it, people to interview to plug those holes, uh, to tell a larger holistic story about a place, um, or in this case, the, the park, and um, how it had impact on people's lives. Um, project Jukebox projects can vary from anything to a few recordings to dozens and dozens of recordings. Um, we try very hard to get transcripts to go along with it so that as you're listening or viewing, some of them are audio only, some of them are in video, but the transcript's actually rolling underneath the audio or the video so that you can actually read it. Usually on the left-hand side of the bar uh, on, the, on the website is like chapter titles, so you can jump to wherever it is that you want um, in a recording if you're interested in a particular thing. Usually on the right-hand side, there'll be a, a panel where it says themes. So if there's a particular theme that you're interested in as a researcher, if you click on that, you will see the number of interviews come up that will, you know, where that theme is discussed. So for a research point of view, you don't have to go trolling and look through things. Sometimes people donate um, their own photographs or there's photographs already in an archive. So we create what's called a slideshow, which is very useful sometimes when people are talking about something to actually see a visual image of it. I think the a good example of that is with the Exxon Valdez oil spill project jukebox. There's a number of people's personal photos of, of what the oil spill looked like in their backyard of their home, basically, in the ocean. Um, so it gives us added context to the recordings and more of a holistic story being told both visually and um, audio. So from what I can uh, tell, um, Project Jukebox so was fun, uh, started back in... Uh, started back in the... Well, the archive itself started back in about 81. Okay. And my predecessor was um, Dr. Bill Schneider. Right. And with uh, when Apple computers were just sort of coming out, him and a graduate student got a got a grant from Apple, and they started, you know, putting rec recordings on things and putting them into a machine, just like a jukebox. That's why it's called Project Jukebox. And so over the years, delivery platforms have changed. It went from HyperCard to HTML to testimony software. We're now currently using Drupal 7 software to deliver it. That's all going to go away next year. And so right now we're again in that technology bump where we're looking at do we go with Drupal 8? Do we go with a different type of technology? How is this going to work? Of course, you know, migrating systems is extremely difficult. Well, this is all the technical stuff behind it to make these platforms available. And technology changes very rapidly, and platforms change rapidly. So we're forever, you know, in the hamster wheel of trying to keep this stuff going and keep it presented online in a in a way that's still going to function when when platforms change. Right. So at nineteen eighty eight is when the yeah. Project Jukebox is yeah. founded. Right. And we're uh, 31 years later, uh, here in 2019, and um, you know the, the the value of the project. I mean, it's grown so vastly through these 30 years, and with technology also developing, uh, and and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And just to double back real quick, I uh, counted in uh, that Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve the list of folks interviewed is it's uh, like. 70s. I was going to say 67 or something, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's in, yeah, like the low 70s. So yeah, it that is undoubtedly a very massive project, but the fact that, that this is just uh, a, a component of the broader aspect of Project Jukebox is, is very impressive. And discussing these um, technological changes that you were... Um, I'm curious about some of the some of the recording mediums that were in use and existed prior to Project Jukebox. You know, some of the um, maybe stranger or less well-known uh, mediums that existed. Well, one of the very first recording mediums was wax cylinders. It was used by a lot of anthropologists, especially like Boaz. Um, we don't have any wax cylinders in our collection. I was recently, well, not recently, two years ago, I was in Berlin, and I was uh, very excited to go down to the catacomb basement down there that was just filled wall-to-wall floor-to-ceiling with wax cylinders from anthropologists around the world but we don't we don't have any wax cylinders um, we do have um, a couple of unique um, items one are they're they look like large LP records 
They're actually bigger than an LP. And they're, they have three holes in the top of them to go onto a player, so you know right away that it's not a normal LP. And they're actually glass. So they're quite heavy. When you pick them up, they're quite heavy. And basically what happened was during World War II, um, there was a shortage of aluminum, which goes into the making of, an L of records. And so they came up with this other medium, which was putting a lacquer on top of glass and then recording on, on that. And so these are called lacquered glass discs. And um, we have four. And oddly enough, they came to us from a collection, Dorothy Jean Ray, who was an anthropologist. And basically all that says on the labels, because it's like a handwritten label in the center, is Atu, 1945, December. It might say morning song or basket weaving on one of them or whatever. And we knew right away, they came to us um, after um, Dorothy Jean had passed away, her collection came into the archives. And it's not unusual for when archives get collections, you open a box and there's papers, there's slides, there's film, there's cassette recordings, there's, you know, a hodgepodge of what people have collected. And so that's when it gets doled out to the individual units for the expertise to deal with them. So we came into possession with these, and as soon as we saw the three holes in the record, we knew that this was not a regular LP, so we started doing some searching. I'd never even heard of glass records. Um, so we also learned that if we put them on a record player and played them, we'd probably destroy them. So uh, we started looking around, you know, how on earth can we even find out what's on these records? And it was a couple of years, um, and then we found that um, the Northeast Document Conservation uh, Center actually was dealing with this new technology called IRENE, where they put the medium, this case being the record, on a machine, and it's basically a laser that goes around and takes a photograph of every single groove. And then the software takes these images, knits them back together again, and sound comes out. To this day, I still don't understand wow. how it does it, but it's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So we, we got some funding. Um, the library found some funding, a couple thousand dollars, and we, we sent the records down to them. And so th of the four records, so there's eight, eight sides, of course, because every record has two sides. Um, one of the records, what happens with the lacquer is it starts to actually peel off and come away from the glass. So one of the sides of one of the records is heavily damaged. So they could only do seven of the of the eight sides. I'm still looking for funding to do the eighth side because it's going to take a lot. And now they're actually building algorithms so that when lacquer or a piece is actually broken, the algorithms will read what was before and what was after, and then the algorithms will, will actually create the sound that it thinks should go back together mm -hmm. again. So this technology is changing, con like improving all the time. So we, we did get these um, records digitized. Um, I was very worried because it said Atu on it. Um, you know, what's the content? What's, what's the story behind this? And we were very fortunate at the time that Kolang, um, Indigenous Language Conference, was happening here at UAF. And uh, Moses Dirks was here. And he's from the Aleutian Islands and is a native speaker of his island. He came in and he instantly um, recognized that it was a, a dialect that was spoken along uh, uh, um, on Atu Island that is no longer spoken by anyone. And interestingly enough, there's a, it sounds like a man and a woman and another woman singing on these records. They identified themselves. And so we were able to track down the family. Yeah. Um, who didn't even know that they existed, of course. And these had, this was a, a couple who had been taken prisoner of war in Japan from Atu Island. And so it was, it was a, a long time to really find that whole story and historical context and why these records were in Dorothy Jean's collection when she didn't even work in that area. And it ends up that she was married to Vern Ray, and he was in anthropology in Seattle. They were not... Even, I don't even know if they knew each other at the time that this happened. And somehow he, he heard about these people coming to Seattle um, after they'd been freed from Japan and they were supposed to be on their way back to Atu and that, that wasn't going to happen. And he, I found, um, found somebody who had interviewed him at one time and he said he made a number of hours and hours of these recordings on these glass discs. And he had given all but four of them to the Smithsonian who could not find them. 
So, which is, you know, not unusual back in the 40s with how things were taken into collections. I've, I have searched the world looking for these other records and not found them yet. Um, there are there are wax cylinders of this dialect, but I have a hunch maybe we have the only four existing records with this wow. dialect yeah. on it. Um, the family did not want them to be put on the internet. Uh, the family asked that, yes, they could be archived with us, but if you want to listen to them, you need to come into our office. Um, we can talk about legalities and ethics later, but this is one of those instances. And they're beautiful. Uh, one of the records is called A Morning Song, and Mr. Dirks managed to translate and transcribe that for us uh, as best he could understand. And it's all about a story of um, don't cry, I'll, you know, someone's dying, I'll come back for you. And knowing the historical context of how these records are made and what these people had gone through just uh, makes us sound even more poignant. I almost well up with tears every time I, I listen to it now that I know the story behind the actual recording. I mean, it, it's incredible um, to, to think about, uh, you know, every glass <laughs> yeah. recordings, but um, to see that, um, you know, even at that time, the, the value of recording it um, and then, uh, you know, um, of course, at that time, technologically, you know, the unaware of, you know, it's a one time thing, um, but how important it is to us now and how valuable it can be. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, in the previous conversations, I, I would I, I made that that correlation, you know, I, Leslie I and, and Dylan, I, I get frustrated when the buffer, you know, the, the circle of endless loop, uh, you know, uh, doesn't work for me um, and it won't load. But to think about then, I mean, you know, if you, you play a glass, um, you know, recording once, that's it, you know, and, um, you know, to think about how far we've come, but also, you know, how valuable it is and how, uh, you know, we need to preserve these and uh, we need to work with Leslie uh, and uh, and find these, these lost, um, you know, glass <laughs> recordings. But anyways, um, you know, and I, I think, just thinking about archives and, and you know I, I think we briefly mentioned uh, there's wired yes right? we so. have we have uh, <laughs> we have wire recordings which everybody goes wire recordings yeah. and <laughs> these are very small maybe just three inches in diameter uh, the wire is about the thickness of a hair a human hair and uh, these were very very popular after the Second World War before magnetic tape was really being used and they were used as you know for dictation machines we actually have the actual recorder it was owned by harry hughes who was an electronics buff and owned an electronics shop here in fairbanks back in the 50s and 60s and um it's all with you know vacuum tubes so we were a little bit afraid to even plug it in. And there was a gentleman from the nanny who came up and tested all the tubes for us. He actually had a wire recorder himself. He got it going for us. And uh, we managed to, to listen to everything that's on these. I think we have eight or nine wire recordings, if I'm not mistaken. They were all made by Harry Hughes. Uh, we also have, I don't know how many hundreds, if not thousands of other recordings that Hughes made. He he was just a person that loved to turn on a, a, a tape recorder anywhere he went and record things. Um, these particular recordings, there's a couple that are of real interest. Um, he obviously took it to meetings when they were planning Alaska land. What was it going to be? What did they want it to do? Where was it going to be? All the different sites in town are discussed. Um, what did they want to have there? They wanted to have a petting zoo. They wanted to have all this other stuff. Skating rink, where the Air Museum is now. So it's a wonderful piece of Fairbanks history. The audio quality is absolutely awful because he probably parked it on a table somewhere, not even close to where people were talking. So some people are loud and other people are really quiet and, you know, the, the actual quality. But the content is, is fascinating. And another thing that he did was he was married at the time to a woman named Ruby. And they used to leave each other little, little like, love letters or notes Um he would go in and record something and then turn off the recorder and then she'd come in and record something. And so it, it's a really fine example of what um, men thought marriage should be in the 1950s. Um, one of them is, is, now Ruby, you go down to that beauty parlor and you make yourself look real pretty for me. <laughs> and uh, I played it for my class here this week and everybody's just groaning. But it's, it's just this wonderful piece of this is what it was like um, in that era. And this is how husbands and wives interacted. 
get a little bit of a slice of life. <laughs> and I think that that should tie nicely into the second clip that you have for us, if you would like to uh, discuss that a little bit. The so that, uh, it's the Bobby Sheldon yes. um, speaks at the Tanana Yukon Historical Society. And we, we briefly spoke about this before. And there's a story to it, too, on the topic of love and recordings. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, we're so blessed that the Tanana Yukon Historical Society, back in the 60s and 70s, were really, when, when little cheaper port portable tape recorders became available cassettes. It, it really revolutionized what people started to record. And this, this is a perfect example. So they did a lot of interviews with people here in Fairbanks, but they also did a lot of meetings. The next clip will be about a meeting. And this is also at a meeting. So they recorded these um, lectures or meeting uh, things that they came to. And one of the one of these gentlemen is Bobby Sheldon. And so he's speaking um, in Fairbanks. It's July 23rd, 1964. And he's actually talking about an event that happened in 1904. He was very smitten with a, with a young lady. And he decided that if he bought a kit, a car kit, that put this together, he would have the very first car in Alaska. And of course, who wouldn't? go out with the man who owned the very first car in Alaska. So off he goes, buys it, and he tells this big, long story about it. But the uh, short story is, no, she married someone else. <laughs> and the car, you can actually see it today in the Fountainhead Car Museum here in Fairbanks. So this is um, a little clip about Bobby talking about that. It, at the time he's talking, it was 60 years after the fact. Um, 55 years later, we're here, and we're listening to something that happened 115 years ago in Alaska. The meeting of the Hanuman-Yukon Historical Society that taking place on July the 23rd, 1964. Bobby Sheldon, pioneer, an early day transportation man, will tell us of the building of the first automobile in Alaska. Bobby, uh, how, what, uh... What started the whole thing and how did it all come about? That's right. That's what you're going to ask me. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Chairman and uh, ladies and gentlemen, members of the Alaska Historical Society, <clears throat> in 1904, I was in Skagaway, Alaska as a young man, and while you might not think it looked at me now, I had a sweetheart in those days, and she was something very special. She was so special that several other boys was very much interested in her too. And one of those boys happened to be the good-looking son of a very prominent doctor who was practicing his profession there at that time, and who later moved into this camp Dr. M. F. Hall. <clears throat> Dr. Hall had a very swanky horse and buggy, rubber tired buggy, if you please, in those days. And this boy, the doctor's son, used to be able to use the buggy in the evenings when the doctor wasn't using it. <clears throat> and he would drive up to my girl's home and take her out in the buggy, and they'd drive down by the power plant where I was tied up with $100,000 worth of machinery and couldn't get away. And as they drove by, they would wave at me, sort of tootly doing or whatever the salutation was in those days, which is what we call today rubbing it in. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I became very much disturbed about this activity, as anyone greatly in love naturally would be. <clears throat> Any of you people who have never been in love would just not fully appreciate what one goes through at that age under those circumstances. I refer to her as my girl advisedly <clears throat> because uh, that was my understanding. She told me she loved me better than she did him. But just what she was telling him, I just never did find out. 
But my chief worry was how to compete with his horse and buggy. There were many discarded buggies in Alaska, in the, uh, Skagway, Alaska, because, uh, as is well known now, many people, when they mortgaged their farm in Iowa or someplace, they took the last horse and buggy they had and shipped it to Seattle and on to Skagway with the idea of driving by horse and buggy right into the gold fields and after shoveling a few hundred thousand dollars into the back end of the buggy, driving right back home again and really lifting the mortgage and marrying the schoolgirl sweetheart and living happily together ever after. That was in the minds of thousands of men that left the United States for Alaska. And I don't think that's a, an overstatement because unused and discarded buggies were scattered all over Skagway from one end to the other because when they got there, they found out that you could not only couldn't drive a horse and buggy over White Pass, but you couldn't take a horse over there either. So they would load the buggy up with their outfit, <clears throat> drive out to the foot of the mountains, uh, discard the buggy, take the horse then as far as he could go with everything tied around his neck and every place else, then they'd shoot the horse and go on with what was left on their backs over the hill. This is Speaking of Anthropology. My name's Dylan. My name's Kevin. Uh, and that was just a clip from uh, Bobby Sheldon speaking at the Tanana Yukon Historical Society. On the show today, we have uh, Leslie McCartney from the UAF uh, Library and a curator, director of the Oral History Program here at UAF. Uh, and, uh, you know, that clip itself, um, man, you know, <laughs> uh, so, you know, in 1964, it's definitely the way they speak and the way uh, and the content in the first car in Alaska. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it blows my mind. And also just the idea of, of uh, you know, Bobby uh, speaking out on, on love and uh, this passion and uh, his story itself. Um, and with that being said, we do have a, a PSA we want to quickly bring up uh, for all the listeners that are interested uh, it's for the Icebox uh, uh, contest. Uh, calling, they are calling for submissions. Uh, submissions for the, uh, they are accepting submissions for the spring 2020 issue of the Icebox. Uh, it is a literary journal that showcases the creative work of UAF undergraduates, uh, and they want. They are looking for submissions of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, flash fiction, graphic art or literary comics, and or photographs and visual art pieces. Uh, to share. Uh, the submissions are due December 14, 2019. Please email your submissions to uaficebox at gmail.com or submit to the Icebox Dropbox at the English Department on the 8th floor of green, the Greening Building here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So once again, December 14th is submission deadline. And, uh, you know, so anyone interested, check it out. Uh, but I mean, storytelling, uh, you know, uh, I think you should not only submit to Icebox, but also submit to, to Leslie if you have a great oral history, right? Uh, you know, uh, that, that can be told, uh, whether it be like Bobby Sheldon and his love for for someone in his first car. Um, but, you know, uh, why, why, what caught your attention to this uh, oral history piece? Oh, I just love the fact that we're listening to something that happened 115 years ago from the actual person who did it. And thank you to the Tamna Yukon Historical Society for having the foresight in the 1960s to even recording these, or we would have, you know, that's probably not really written up anywhere in a book. You're not going to find it except probably in an oral source. And so I think it's just one of those wonderful examples about hearing about someone's lived experience, and that lived experience was 115 years ago. It really is uh, somewhat mind-boggling, right, to be thinking of, of that kind of scale, right? You know, and also, too, like this is an event that took place, you know, 115 years ago. And then he's recounting it, you know, some uh, 60 odd years after it happened. And then we're hearing that, you know, 55 years after that. And so, yeah, it certainly is impressive. But on this um, sort of topic of these kinds of uh, oral histories that uh, catch your ear, we do have a, a listener question from a from Kendrick, uh, someone we, a guest we've actually had on the show before and a friend of the show. Um, and he's curious as to like what your favorite sort of um, oral recount, your favorite sort of oral 
history is. So I don't actually have like one recording, but I'll tell you about subjects of recordings that I really love. Um, I love the elders' stories in different cultures about place names and the stories behind those place names. Um, there's been a lot of anthropology done, you know, Keith Basil, Basil, for example, about, you know, the meaning of place. And so I love recordings where people talk about a place, how it was named, why it was named that, and what the place means to a culture. Um, I just I just love that kind of work. So when I worked with the Gwich'in, um, that was primarily most of the stories, as you heard with Lena Charlie. You know, you travel here and you go to this place and you go to that place, and you know you're living your life in type of seasonal realms and what the names of these places meant, and it conveys a whole cultural landscape. So cultural landscape is something that I I love cultural landscape, and so when I went to work in England. I was working in central London, and um, we were doing interviews about, you know, what does this place mean? Because it was on the, the wrecking ball um, to be um, re re restored and regenerated. And so it was all about capturing um, people who had lived there for multiple years about what did this place mean. And so here you're taking, you know, place names of hills and mountains and rivers and streams in the Northwest Territories, and now you're in central London talking about meaning of place there. And we were really, really fortunate that the um, London Architectural Biennale was happening, and we actually created an almost an hour-long sound trail. So you would start at a certain spot on a street in London, and you would walk this trail, and as you walked this trail, you heard stories of the people who used to live in the particular buildings or events that happened where you were standing. So again, it turned this very hard urban landscape into a very cultural landscape. I cannot play you any clips from that because it's actually owned by the Camden, the um, London Borough of Camden. But if you can go, if you email me, I'll send you the direct link. But if you go to London Borough of Camden's library website, you can listen online to the Argyle Sound Trail. Yes, it's not quite the same when you're sitting in Alaska <laughs> listening to it in central London, um, but it gives you that idea of place. And one of my favorite stories on that particular sound trail was of a woman who we had interviewed who was who's quite elderly who had been in a building where you're, you're going to stand in front of and it had been bombed in the Second World War, and she was the only person to survive um, that particular bombing. And she hid underneath, they called them Morrison shelters, they were like a table. And when she wo woke up, her, her arm was burning and it was the acid from the batteries dripping down on her. And she tells the story of, of being in there for so many hours before being rescued and being the only person to walk out alive. And we're, when you're standing on the street and you're listening to that story, um, if you don't start to cry or get goosebumps, there's something wrong because it really it really brings home a sense of place. So a long-winded answer to your to your um, listener, uh, but the sense of place through story is one of my favorite things about oral history and recordings. I think that uh, it is a perfectly uh, suited answer to the question, and I think yeah that the um, that that ability to kind of hammer home where you at where you are at and and you know the history of that place right. And I remember uh, I spent four weeks in Berlin this past summer. And so um, one of the things I have a clear memory of is being in a, um, in a Lutheran church in what used to be East Berlin and speaking with a member of the congregation who, who was, uh, you know, had been with that church since like the 70s. And so talking about um, some of her stories from what the church was like in the uh, in the DDR times in East under the East German government, and so that kind of hammers home, right? That that you know this is, you know, yeah, you're here in the moment, right? I was there in 2019, right? But the but getting to talk to someone about the history and you know their associations with this church, with this building that I am in now, for the past couple decades, and what it looked like in an entirely different government in a different era, it certainly is a wonderful experience, and and I think. Being able to uh, get that, even if you're, if even if we can't be in London today, right? Being able to, you know, you know, sit and listen to recordings and and that kind of stuff is, it still is, is a nice nice aspect of our modern digital era for sure. And on that note, we do have one last recording for our, our uh, listeners today, a third clip. Um, 
if you would like to discuss this one a little bit. Yes, this one is also from the Tano Yukon Historical Collection Society. It was recorded on at a meeting on April 23, 1970. And um, it's all about street names, uh, the history of street names in Fairbanks. And so I just want you to play this little clip for them and we can talk about it for a minute. All righty. Uh, she goes on Hall Street, bears the name of one of the first doctors, Dr. F.M. Hall. His office stood on Turner Street between 2nd and 3rd in his home. And that's where Hall Street came from. Blanchfield, the little street joining 1st and 2nd Avenue between Cushman and Lacey, owners the first Fairbanks youth killed in the First World War. Being uh, small and a bit crippled, he was rejected by the U.S. Army, so he joined the Canadian forces and uh, distinguished himself in the air service, where he was shot down. Uh, Percy Blanchfield graduated from the Little Red School that stood where Maine does now. Did you remember him, boy? Yeah. Is this essentially okay. correct to be... But what uh, streets were Blanchfield. Yeah, I know, but what location? Well, uh, we c she, she has it correct. It's between, um, between first and second there, right across from the co-op. Kind of. yeah. yeah. Okay, that's, I never knew what her name from. It's just a, we used to call it Blanchfield Alley, but actually it's supposed to be a street. Blanchfield. No, it isn't on the map. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's just, it's just a. Well, no, that would be the same one. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Oh. Just put, put, put the street through instead. Yeah. She goes on uh, Noble Street. Uh, Noble Street, uh, she says, George Noble owned one of the first saloons on First Avenue, also a prominent businessman who worked to instigate starting the Eagles Lodge, area number 1037, and was active in the old Arctic Brotherhood that first started on Clary Creek. So Noble Street after one George Noble. This is Speaking of Anthropology. My, My name is Dylan. My name is Kevin. <laughs> and I'm Leslie McCartney. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, that was such an interesting uh, clip right there, um, talking about Hall Street, Blanchfield Street, and Noble Street. So to those listeners in Fairbanks, if you're driving on any of those streets or <laughs> whatever street uh, it is, um, you know, turn turn left, turn right, I guess. <laughs> Head towards the next street. Um very interesting clip. Yes. And there is no Blanchfield Street anymore. And I think that's what's so poignant about listening to these recordings is that, you know, this was a young soldier who, who died. And the only way we really know anything about him now is through this this short little clip that just happened to be on this recording about the, the meaning of different street names in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we, we're nearing the end of our show today, Leslie, and we uh, we appreciate you for coming in and, and describing the oral history program to us, Project Jukebox, and, uh, you know, how how important, um, you know, uh, audio, such as what we're talking about right now here at Speaking of Anthropology, but everything in between. I want to give you one last opportunity. Um, you know, we ask usually our, uh, our guests, uh, what is anthropology? But maybe... Maybe I, maybe I could ask you, what is sound? How about that, Leslie? Oh, yeah. what is sound? Yeah. Oh, okay. You threw me off because I had no yeah. answer. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you can answer anthropology too. Well, but, sound uh, is, is, yeah. is hearing, but what we're doing here is we're recording this so yeah. that we can listen to it, um, you know, as long as the medium keeps up. The first sound recording actually was made on a, on a uh, it's called a phonogram, and it was actually made on a cylinder with charcoal, and it recorded but there was no playback. So it's not just recording, it's having the ability to play this back. 
Um, and in order to play back wire recordings, we need wire recorders. Uh, in order to play back cassettes, we need cassette recorders. Digital, we're going to need digital. So um, I think it's just it's just a wonderful way of capturing our humanity by recording this so that hopefully in future people can listen to it. Um, I think one of the most wonderful comments I ever got was I got a phone call one day, and it was a woman, and she was crying on the phone, so I was a little concerned. And she just said to me, I want to thank you for letting me spend the morning with my grandmother. And I thought, okay. And she said, I found my grandmother's recording in your archive, and I'd never met my grandmother, and I'd never heard her voice. And this morning, I spent the morning with my grandmother. And that just makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, Leslie, we want to thank you so much for coming in today and uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, oral history and, uh, you know, Project Jukebox. Definitely check it out. Uh, any anthropologist students out there, please uh, get on over to the library and speak to Leslie if you have any questions. Uh, or email. Or email. Or email. Reach or email. Out. Reach out. at alaska.edu, and I'm only too happy to help people and hopefully instill a passion for oral sources with people. Definitely. Thank okay. you so much for coming Thank on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much. This has been Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5 FM, Fairbanks, Alaska. Thank you for listening.